Well, there was a man and his wife who were walking down the street when they saw one of these scales that advertised for 50 cents. It would tell you your weight and something about yourself. The man stepped on the scale. He drops his money in, and his piece of paper came out. He smiles as he's reading it. He puffs out his chest. He hands it to his wife, and he says, it says that I'm handsome, charming, and intelligent. And she looks at it and says, well, I see it got your weight wrong as well. Uh, Now, as we turn in our Bible today to Daniel chapter 5, we're going to meet a guy by the name of Belshazzar. And we're going to see that everything he thought about himself was wrong, including his own weight. Uh, He was sitting on the throne in Babylon, and he thought of himself as being even greater than God. But he will find that rather than being in the heavyweight class as he thought, that he was said to be deficient. And so when it comes to Belshazzar... Uh, he wasn't as great as he thought he was. In fact, he was nothing more than a passing footnote in history, so much so that uh, secular historians didn't even know that he existed until the 1850s, aside from what we find in Daniel chapter 5. And because of that, critics of the Bible had a field day saying the Bible can't be trusted because it has errors in it like this, talking about this guy by the name of Belshazzar. But then in 1854, archaeologists uncovered uh, the clay cylinder that you see up there on the screen. And on this clay cylinder, it said Nabonus, uh, who was the king, had a prayer to the moon god for Belshazzar, the eldest son, my offspring. And then in 1882, a translation of another ancient cuneiform text was called the Nabonus Chronicle, spoke of King Nabonus giving full control of Babylon to the crown prince. And then in 1924, the British Museum published the Persian account of Nabonus, which spoke of him entrusting the kingship to Belshazzar in the third year of his reign. Now, I keep saying this name, Nabonus, and you're saying, well, I don't really see that in my text, Roger. What, what does this name mean? Well, this name is actually in the line of succession, so let me give you that. And as you hear it, it's quite the soap opera. When we left off last week in Daniel chapter 4, you'll remember King Nebuchadnezzar was on the throne. And when Nebuchadnezzar died, his son, his only son, Evil Merodach, who's mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 25 and verse 27, came to the throne. And two years later, Merodach was murdered by a brother-in-law who was married to one of Nebuchadnezzar's other daughters. And that brother-in-law was named Nergal Sherzer. We find him mentioned in Jeremiah chapter 39 and verses 3 and 13. He reigned for four years before he was replaced by his young son, who only lasted a few months because Nabonus came in and murdered him. And he was the the son-in-law of another daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, as all this infighting is taking place in the family, the once mighty Babylonian empire is falling apart. And because of that, when Nabonidus took the throne, he had to go to war to try to bring the kingdom back together. And that chronicle I showed you earlier mentions how he was off fighting in Arabia for 10 years, which is why he put his son Belshazzar on the throne uh, to mine the home front. And during that decade when he was away is when the media Persian army started to overrun the kingdom. And as we pick up the story today in Daniel chapter 5, they are at the gates of the city. They've surrounded Babylon and they've laid siege to the city. And Daniel 5.1 tells us, Belshazzar, the king, held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. Now, if things were as bad as I just told you, 
Why is he holding this blowout party? Well, it's a lot like the Titanic, where people said uh, the Titanic was unsinkable, so why worry about the icebergs? Uh, The city of Babylon was said to be impenetrable. It was a... Uh, a, a massive city with lots of fortifications. So he wasn't worried about a little siege going on outside the gates of the city. Babylon was a city of grandeur and might. Two of the wonders of the ancient world were located in Babylon. One is the hanging gardens that you see up there on the slide. And the other of the two of the seven wonders of the ancient world were the walls of Babylon themselves. There's a, a, a historian named Herodas who said that the city of Babylon was surrounded by a set of outer walls that were 85 feet thick and 300 feet high in places. The walls were protected by more than 100 guard towers at intervals along the wall. And this wall covered over 14 square miles. Now, to get an idea of the size of that, our church is located in Castle Hills, which is inside the the limits of San Antonio. And if you were to take the geographic area that encompasses Castle Hills and multiply it by five, that's how big the area of Babylon was that was encompassed by these walls. So within these massive outer walls was a secondary set of inner walls. It had a system of rivers and moats that not only provided protection, but also an abundant water supply. The other thing they had within the walls of the city was a lot of farmland where they could raise crops and the storehouses had 20 years worth of supplies laid up. So you can see that as this media Persian army sets up outside the walls, Belshazzar says, we're not worried about it. We'll just wait these guys out. And to boost the morale of his leaders and to show contempt for the army that's outside, he's throwing this party that we're reading about. And as the party gets going, the king gets drunk, which is what verse 2 means when it says Belshazzar tasted the wine. Now, if you've been around somebody who's drinking excessively, you know that as they get drunk, their inhibitions go away, and many times they begin to think they're bigger and badder than everybody else. And Belshazzar was not content just to show contempt for the media Persian army outside. He decides to show contempt for God, which is why... Uh, he, we read in verses 2 through 4, it says, He gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem in order that the king and his nobles, his wives, his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, which was in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. And they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Now, you remember in this soap opera of succession that I just gave you that uh, Belshazzar was the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. And so is it a mistake when we read here that Nebuchadnezzar is his father? No. It was just the way that people would speak in times to tie themselves to somebody of great prominence in the line. You think of Jews today, we'll talk about Abraham as their father, even though they're many generations removed from Abraham. And so what Belshazzar is doing is he's saying, if Nebuchadnezzar was the gold standard, if he was the biggest and most prominent in the line of Babylonian kings, and he wants to show he's bigger and badder than Nebuchadnezzar, The way he's doing that is, as we saw in Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar, remember, had been humbled. And he said, God in heaven is greater than I am. 
He acknowledged that Jehovah Yahweh was the true God, and he began to worship him. So what Nebuchadnezzar, if he's the gold standard and God is even greater, what he's doing here is saying, I'm greater than God, and that's why he's taking these vessels that we saw in Daniel chapter 1, verse 2, that were taken from the temple, and he's desecrating them. Now, God is a God of mercy and grace. He's patient and long-suffering when we sin. But there comes a point where uh, God will also act in justice and judgment. And we see in verse 5 that God crashes the party. And he brings it to a screeching halt because we're told, suddenly the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall in the king's palace. And the king saw the back of a hand that did the writing. And then the king's face grew pale and his thoughts alarmed him. And his hip joints went slack. And his knees began knocking together. There's this little side note about how there's this lampstand and the hand is by it. And the reason for that is Daniel wants us to understand this wasn't some dark shadowy corner where maybe a drunken guest is tagging the wall with graffiti. Uh, Everybody can see there's this well-lit wall and there's suddenly this free-floating hand. There is no mistake that this is a supernatural event that's taking place. And all of a sudden, the boasting and the toasting comes to a stop. The king is trembling in fear. Verses 7 through 9 say, The king called aloud to bring in the conjurers, the Chaldeans, the diviners. The king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, Any man who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation to me will be clothed with purple and have a necklace of gold around his neck and have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His face grew even paler, and his nobles were perplexed. Now, just in every case, as we've seen before in Daniel, the Babylonian brain trust comes up empty. they're, They're there, and they're unable to give the interpretation. But then in verses 10 through 12, uh, we're told, the queen entered the banquet hall. Because of the words of the king and his nobles, the queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, and in the days of your father, illumination, insight, and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. This was because an extraordinary spirit, knowledge and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas and solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel whom the king named Belteshazzar. Let Daniel now be summoned and he will declare the interpretation. Now, if you look at verse 3, you see that the wives and the concubines of Belshazzar are already there. So when it says the queen comes in, this isn't one of his his uh, harem, this is his, his mother, or maybe even his grandmother, who had seen personally when uh, Nebuchadnezzar was king what Daniel did to interpret. And she comes in and says, this guy Daniel can tell you what's going on. And so we're told in verses 13 through 16, then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, are you that Daniel? Who is the one of the exiles from Judah, whom my father, the king, brought from Judah? Now I've heard about you, that a spirit of the gods is in you, and that illumination, insight, and extraordinary wisdom have been found in you. 
Just now the wise men, the conjurers, were brought in before me that they might read this inscription and make its interpretation known to me, but they could not declare the interpretation of the message. But I personally have heard about you, that you are able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. Now if you are... Now, if you are able to read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me, you will be clothed with purple and wear a necklace of gold around your neck, and you will have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. I want you to remember Nebuchadnezzar is the first ruler. I mean, not Nebuchadnezzar, Nabonus, right? He's off in Arabia fighting, and he's appointed his son Belshazzar as number two. So if Daniel is the third ruler, it means he is in the immediate succession to take over the throne. Daniel is a guy who's breathed a rare air of power before as he served in the king's cabinet previously. This is a guy who, in the soap opera of succession, was demoted and set aside, so much so that Belshazzar has never even seen him before. He had to ask, are you that Daniel? Are you that guy that the queen was talking about? And as he stands there now, he's being offered an opportunity to step back into the inner circle. He's been given a, a, a scenario where he can, he can come back into the place of power. You know, in previous scenarios, remember Daniel was a 15-year-old captive when he was brought. Just a young man who stood before an older king. And he served in the, the previous administrations for decades. And now he's the older guy standing before the younger king. Some of you know what this looks like as you maybe are the old dog that people say can no longer hunt, right? And you've seen the young pups who have come in and they've taken over the places of authority or positions of power and you've been kind of pushed to the side. And, and this is Daniel who's now being told, hey, you can have a seat back at the table. You can be back uh, in the highest level of leadership. Others of you here uh, maybe have found yourself set aside as well. Your looks or popularity have started to fade and another's taking your place. And I say that because there comes a point in many people's lives where they don't finish well. How many times do you look at somebody who, who lived a life of integrity or things uh, for a long, long period of time, but at the end of their career, they crash and burn? And many times it's because of this desire to get back to a place of power or to make one last grab at something you've wanted your whole life. And this is the temptation facing Daniel. At a very young age, from a teenager on, he's been in a place of prominence. But then he's been set aside. But now they're saying, hey, you can step back in to the spotlight. But you're going to have to compromise. Before you sell out, friends, I want you to remember what the Bible says in Mark 8, 36. It says, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Here Daniel's being offered an opportunity to get back in the game if he'll just set aside uh, his, his worship and his honor of the one true God. But instead of grabbing for the lamp, limelight, look at what Daniel says in verse 17. Keep your gifts for yourself or give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. Daniel says, listen, I'm going to tell you what you need to hear. I'm going to tell you what God wants you to know. But I want you to know I won't become a part of your administration that dishonors the God that I serve. 
If you had been in Daniel's situation, would you have done that? Or would you have said, give me, give me the prizes, let me have that place? As a student at school, some of you are going to face situations like this where your friends are mocking God or dishonoring him or doing something that's wrong. And you're faced with a choice. Uh, will you go along with the crowd in order to have a place with the popular kids or to be accepted? When you're at work, there will be temptations to stay silent when you see something that's not right or to do what everybody else is doing because they're telling you, hey, that's just the way that business is done. You know, the world tells us as Christians, you have to leave your relationship with Christ at the door. You have to compromise in order to, to win. And if you're pursuing the things of the world at the cost of your convictions as a Christian, I want you to stop and think about how fleeting and how passing the things of the world are, the power, the possessions, all these things the world offers us. You know, as a pastor, I do a lot of funerals. And I get to, to be there at the end of people's lives to hear about who they were and what they stood for. And I go to the cemetery and I, I bury the body of a believer. And many times I'm there before the rest of the family. So I have time just to kind of walk around and look at the, the tombstones, the headstones that are all around the place where the person's about to be buried. And I can tell you, in 25 years of reading headstones, I've never once seen a headstone that said CEO, valedictorian, all-American, Salesman of the year. Why aren't those things on tombstones? Because, friends, in the end, it just really doesn't matter. You know what you find on tombstones? Relationships. Father, son, mother, brother, beloved this or that. Follower of Jesus Christ, servant of the Lord. Because at the end of life, that's what's important. That's what lasts. And in verses 18 through 23, Belshazzar is about to find out how fleeting the things of this world are because Daniel says, O king, now notice he doesn't say, O king, live forever. He says, O king, the most high God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father. And because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished, he killed. Whomever he wished, he spared alive. Whomever he wished, he elevated. And whomever he wished, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken away from him. He was also driven away from mankind and his heart was made like the beasts and his dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that the most high God is ruler over the realm of mankind and that he sets over it whomever he wishes. Yet you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart even though you knew all this, but you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven and they have brought the vessels of his house before you and you and your nobles and your wives and your concubines have been drinking wine from them and you have praised the gods of silver, gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, hear, or understand. But the God in whose hand are your life breath and your ways, you have not glorified. 
You know, there's a saying that tuition is cheaper if you learn from somebody else's experiences. And here Belshazzar is told, you know what happened in Daniel chapter 4, king? You know how this king was humbled until he repented of his pride and acknowledged who the true God of heaven was and turned to him. And he says, but you haven't done this. You've refused to humble yourself. You've mocked the true God. So he says in verse 25, now this is the inscription that was written out. Mene, mene, tikal, upharsin. Now, these words are in Aramaic, so everyone could read them. Remember, uh, that was the language of the day. And, and it's like writing H2O on a wall. Any kindergartner can read H2O. But unless they know that's the chemical name for water, they don't know what it means. So when it tells us here they couldn't understand what this meant, they can read the, the Aramaic words. They just don't know what's this saying. So in verses 26 through 28, we're told, this is the interpretation of the message. Mine, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. Now, this first word, mine, is, literally means to number, and we find it written twice. Uh, you've probably heard people say when somebody dies, their number is up. And that's because the Bible tells us God has numbered our days. And so the fact that it's repeated here is where God is telling Belshazzar both the number of your days of life as well as the numbers of your kingdom rule are up. Tikal means to weigh. Now, when Belshazzar was checked, he was said to be deficient or too light. Now, this isn't speaking of his literal weight, but as you see on the screen there, this is one of these old balance arm scales. And the way that they would weigh things in that day is you would put a weight of measure on one side. That was the standard. And then whatever you were weighing would be placed on the other side. And if it was of an equal weight or things, you would balance the scale. But he's told you're too light. There is a standard of measure that has been placed over here. And that standard of measure is God. God in his perfection. And he says, when you who think you're greater than God rather than outweighing God, <laughs> you've been shown to be the lightweight that you are. If this were judgment day for you and you were placed on the scale and God's on the other end, how would you measure up? When you think in terms of God and how you would measure up, what would God say about you? Romans 3.23 tells us, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is the picture. There's a scale. And it says God is on this side is the standard. And we on judgment day are placed on this side. You see, the word glory is the Hebrew word kavod. And it literally means heavy, heavy. It was used to describe a soldier returning from battle victoriously where they were loaded down with the spoils of war. As a, as a returning army came back with all the plunder and the soldiers were marching, they were literally heavy, kavod, covered in glory. They were weighted down by the loot they were carrying back. And so this is the picture of God and his glory. And it says God is heavy and his standard is perfection. And we are placed on the other side. And it says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We do not measure up to God's standard. Now, see, the standard is not Belshazzar. You can say, well, hey, I'm better than this guy. I've never mocked God. We can say, I'm not a mass murderer. I haven't done all these things other people have done. 
God doesn't weigh us against others. He weighs us against his standard of perfection. And if you look at Exodus chapter 31 and verse 18, we find another time where the hand of God wrote something. There it says in Exodus 31, 18, and when God had finished speaking with Moses upon Mount Sinai, he gave Moses the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written by the finger of God. Now, what was written on those tablets are what we call the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not have any other gods before me. Thou shalt not worship any graven image. Thou shalt not take the name, God's name in vain. That, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Honor thy father and mother. Thou shalt not kill, commit adultery, steal, bear false witness, or covet. The Ten Commandments were written with the very finger of God. And beyond the Ten Commandments, there are 603 additional commandments found in the Scriptures. 613 commandments. And what James chapter 2, verse 10 tells us is, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. Have you ever told a lie? You can say, well, it was just a little white lie. Have you ever taken a cookie or some treat when your parents or others told you not to do it? That's stealing, that's disobedience, that's not honoring your parents. You can go down the list and you think about 613 commandments. Have you kept them all and have you kept them all every single day of every day of your life? In other words, have you never ever sinned? Have you been perfect 100% of the time? And the answer is no. Every single one of us has sinned. Romans 3.10 tells us there is none righteous. No, not one. And because of that, we all owe a penalty. We've fallen short. We've sinned. Because Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. What we earn wages, the wages of sin is death. Now, the good news is it goes on to say, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. We've all sinned and fallen short of God's standard of perfection. But when we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, accepting his death in our place, he went to the cross to pay that penalty of death we owe for our sins. And when we receive him as our savior, on judgment day, God is on one side. And instead of us being weighed on the other side and being found deficient, God himself, the son of God, Jesus Christ, is weighed in our place. And guess what? God is perfect, and he balances the scale. And that's why we are received and welcomed into the family of God and welcomed home into heaven as Christians. The Bible says that if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart, God will, believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. That's Romans 10, 9, and it's how we are welcomed home into heaven. But if we reject Jesus, if we say, God, I'm going to do it on my own. I'm good enough to get to you. I don't need Jesus to pay the penalty for me. God says, then you get to be weighed and you get to pay the penalty, the penalty of death because you are deficient. If you've never received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, friends, I invite you to do so to recognize your need for him in your life, to set aside your sin of pride and to humble yourself and acknowledge, I'm a sinner, I fall short of God's standard, and to receive his gift of grace. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tells us, for by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one should boast. 
So if you've not yet received Jesus as your Savior, I invite you to do so. Belshazzar rejected God, and because of that, he was rejected by God, first in that present moment, and eventually for all eternity he will be rejected. Daniel tells him, in the present, judgment is coming, he says, in the form of the Persians. When he says, Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and Persians, that word was written on the wall as Upharsin, and the U is our English word and in Aramaic. So what it says here is, and Perez, which is the plural form of the word that means divided, and it rhymes with Persian. So what God was doing was having a little fun. As he writes on the wall, and he says, your time is up, and he says, guess who's coming to get you? It's the Persians. God has a sense of humor. And so as he's writing this out, the media Persian army is already outside the gates of the city. Belshazzar could have and should have humbled himself and repented when he heard what Daniel told him, but he doesn't. Verse 29 tells us he rewards Daniel, and then he goes right back to the party, ignoring God. And that very night the judgment came because verses 30 through 31 tell us that same night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at the age of 62. How did this happen? I just told you how impenetrable the walls of the city were, that it was this this place that everybody felt safe in, and that was the problem. They felt so safe in the city that they left the river gates unguarded and even unlocked in spite of the enemy army outside because they said, well, the, the Euphrates River is this mighty rushing river. And what historians tell us is that the Persians were secretly building a canal outside of the city to divert the Euphrates River into a nearby lake. And they tripped the trigger, they busted the earthen dam they made, and the water was diverted, and it, flew through, it started to flow through this canal into this lake. And the Euphrates River began to drop, drop, drop in water level to the point that it became about thigh deep, and the Persian and Media army were able to march in under the walls of the city. And as they came into the city, they found the gates unlocked, they found nobody at their guard post, And as they poured into the city and the army began to go through, the people all said, hey, no no problem, kill the king. We're happy to serve as your subjects now. So they didn't put up a fight. And Belshazzar was killed. The fulfillment of the prophecy here in chapter 5 happened. And it also fulfilled the second stage of the prophecy we saw in chapter 2 where the Media Persian Empire succeeded the Babylonian Empire. As we look at a passage of scripture like this, it again reminds us of God's great control over history. It again reminds us that he is the God who who knows today and tomorrow and the future, and he controls it, and we can trust him in all that he says. And it also reminds us of his great grace as he provided the perfect sacrifice to save us from our sins. We're going to come to the communion table now. If you're at home... Worshiping with us online, you can bring the elements, you can get ready to serve those. If you're here with us, as you came in, you should have received one of these prepackaged cups. You'll see in a moment that there's a a clear little top. You'll peel back that first layer to take the uh, communion uh, wafer that we're going to use, and then there's the second thing that you'll peel back. Don't do that yet. I don't want you to spill all over yourselves, Uh, so just be careful as you're peeling that back. But as we take this bread and this juice that represents 
the body and blood of Jesus Christ. If you're one who has not yet received Jesus as your Savior, we ask that you not participate with us. This is a table for believers. This is a time where we celebrate who Jesus Christ is and what he did for us in dying to save us. If you're one who has not yet accepted him yet and you're ready and you have these elements, then I invite you to go ahead and peel back that that top layer and to take out that wafer that represents the body of Jesus Christ. Jesus is called the bread of life. He was the one who came and gave his life on the cross to purchase the gift of eternal life for us. And if you've never received Jesus, but you're ready today to do so, accepting him as your savior, then then you're invited to take this element and, and take it with us here in a moment because it represents his body that was given for us. For those of us who have already received Jesus as our savior, I want you to think for a moment about how you've been living your life recently. It's been, it's been several months since we've taken communion together corporately. And so it may have been a number of uh, days, weeks, even months since you've really examined yourself and taken time to confess any sins that you have. The Bible is clear. We don't lose our salvation, but we can break our fellowship with God. When we sin and we don't tell God we're sorry, that's what confession means. When we don't ask him for his forgiveness for our sins, it it damages our relationship with him. We saw in today's passage where Belshazzar showed no regard for God and how he handled the holy things of God. And as we come to the communion table, I want you to hear the words of 1 Corinthians 11, 27 through 30. Because it tells us, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. What this is telling us is when we sin, we're called to confess our sins. God loves us. Romans 5, 8 says he demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We've already talked about how none of us are perfect. We all owe a penalty of death. Jesus came and he died in our place. He paid that penalty for us. And he offers you full forgiveness for any sin you've committed. 1 John 1, 9 says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I want you to take a few moments now before we take the bread and drink the cup together. Examine your life. See if there's anything you need to say to God. I'm sorry. I've done these things. I ask for your forgiveness. And if you've not yet received him as your savior, you can do so. Remember, as Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and we'll take communion here in just a moment. Lord God, we thank you for your great love for us. Love that you demonstrated in that while we were yet sinners, you, Jesus, came and died for us. We thank you for your mercy and grace, your great love that gave you 
to us, Jesus, to be the payment, the penalty of death that we owed for our sins was paid for as you allowed your body to be nailed to the cross to become the sacrifice for us. We thank you, God, for giving your life so that you could give to us the gift of eternal life. So we come to you now, thankful for your sacrifice, thankful for the forgiveness we have through you, Jesus Christ. It's in your precious name that we pray and thank you. Amen. If you'll take the bread now at home or here with us, and remember that this is the gift that was given to us to give us the gift of eternal life, the body of Jesus Christ, eated in remembrance of him. And then if you'll peel back the top carefully. This cup represents the blood of Jesus that was shed for us. This is just grape juice. But it reminds us of the blood of Christ that was shed in order to wash away your sins and mine. The blood of Jesus, drink it in remembrance of him. You join me, please, as we close in prayer. Lord God, again, we thank you for your great love. We thank you, God, for your sacrifice to save us. We thank you, Father, for your word that we've read today that reminds us not only of your grace and mercy where you balanced the scales, where you took our place because we were deficient. We also thank you, God, for the reminder of how we can look to you and trust you. God, your word that is true and accurate, that has been proven over and over throughout history, to be true and accurate. And again, God, your word that tells us how you are in control of history. We trust you, God, for all eternity. And we ask that you would help us to trust you for today and tomorrow in the times where we're fearful, in the world in which we live where things are uncertain, from jobs and health to the future of our country and all that's happening. We just, we know, God, you're on the throne and history is yours. It is his story literally spelled his story. Your history is your story, God. And so we thank you for being in control of history. We thank you that one day we know you will return and you will make all things right. And as believers in Christ, we thank you that we get to be with you now and in the future and for all eternity. So thank you again for your gift of your son. It's in his name that we pray and thank you. Amen.